Hello and welcome to the Wholehearted Healer Podcast. My name is Dr. Avine Banish and I will be your host. This is the weekly podcast that helps women pause in their busy lives, drop into the heart, and remember their next right step. I am so happy that you're here. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of The Wholehearted Healer. I am your host, Dr. Avian Banish, and I'm so happy that you're here. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to have a conversation with Carrie Wickman. Um, Carrie says that she has been feeding either the body or the soul most of her career. She was a personal chef and caterer for about 25 years, and then she shifted careers and became a a hospice social worker. And she now practices therapy at an addiction and trauma treatment center. And our interests kind of intersect in um, our interest in death and dying. Um, Carrie had um, uh, a high school boyfriend who died of leukemia. um, And then his mother passed away shortly after that. And that really started Carrie on um, a journey to kind of look into death and dying. She eventually went in back to school to get her master's so she could work with the terminally ill. And she's been studying near-death experiences for over 30 years. Um, she says the work that she does in addiction and trauma with her clients is highly influenced by spirituality, seeking beauty and grace as she navigates, as we navigate rather the complexity and chaos of living this earth life amidst suffering and pain. And so Carrie, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. You have such an interesting and rich background. Um, And perhaps we can begin uh, with, you know, what you chose to write because you have such a full life. And so kind of when we distill it down to a blurb, it sounds like um, your experience with um, a high school boyfriend who died, that must have been really traumatic, but it started your your curiosity or your interest in death and dying. Can we start there? Sure. Yeah. And I, I, I didn't mention that um, I, there was a, another boyfriend. What was it about me and losing boyfriends in high school? Um, Not to be funny. It was not funny, but he, he died in a horrible um, car accident where the car and his body were mangled. And so that happened about um, maybe a year and a half to two years before probably about two years before my, my, another high, um, boyfriend died. Now, and this one I had dated for, um, a year and a half to two years. Um, we were very, very close. And when he died of leukemia, it was absolutely devastating. Um, he was his, his mother's only child. And so she was devastated. Um, and just that process of me wondering where, is he and what is happening? And I knew that life continued um, after death, but I was only, gosh, 19 years old when he died. And I just hadn't done a lot of research or study myself. So I began to just get my hands on everything I could. Um, was introduced to, you know, people like Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and Victor Frankel with, you know, the beauty, beautiful um, messages of, um, purpose and meaning and choice and freedom and, and, and all of that. And probably really shaped me into, to knowing that I wanted to go into psychology 
um, because I thought while he was dying in the hospital in San Francisco that I would go into nursing. But I remember after he died and then really, really looking into um, more like afterlife issues that, that that's what I wanted to do. I will add his mother, um, his mother passed about two years after he did. And I, she died of a broken heart, really. I mean, I don't, the doctor didn't know what to call it. She couldn't move her arms and legs. She was paralyzed. I ended up moving in with her and taking care of her in her last months of life. And I was the only one there with her when she died. So really profound experiences for me in a period of about four years of my life. Yes. And I mean, um, for someone so young, I think most people would probably run from death and dying at that point, right? You're young, you're vital, um, you lose someone you love. And um, it's really interesting that, you know, that it, it's a vocation or a calling for you, because I think most people listening would would then say, well, I want, you know, nothing to do with death or dying for a very long time. Um, but it almost awakened something in you. It really did. It felt like a spiritual calling. I remember at one point, I don't know when it was, but I do know that I had a moment um, where I said to myself, or maybe it was a, maybe it was a spiritual guide or, you know, said to me, um, you're meant to do this. This is, if you, if you have been dealt this lot, cause I would ask the question like, why me? Why is this happening to me? Why have I lost so many people that I care about? And that doesn't even include my grandmother who died kind of, she was only 76 and, and dogs and cats and, you know, and, and the, the random people, I mean, there were people, other people in my life that had died who um, violently. Um, and so they were, I wasn't as close as I was to these people, but all of this stuff. And I'm thinking, why? Uh, and there was like almost, I don't know, a message from, from God, a message from the universe that said, uh, if you are dealing with all of this at such a young age, maybe you are meant to, maybe you are supposed to. And that kind of shifted everything for me and probably began more of a quest to look at, um, the process of death, the process of death and dying um, rather than just what death had done to me, you know, it had given me, I, I, it was a loss. It was a grief. It was, a, you know, and so there really are those two ways to look at it. It's, it's the death, the death itself, the process of death, which for some people can not, not be short and violent, but is a lo- prolonged experience and very difficult for them. And for those who are going to say goodbye, there's that. And then there's the aftermath, right? The grieving and the loss and the, and that, that aspect of death. And both of those are very interesting to me. And then you talk about, you know, near-death experience. And I wonder for someone listening who may have heard that term, but doesn't really have any knowledge of that, what do you mean by that? And what have you learned about, um, you know, you really talk about death in a beautiful way. And so the way that you wrote about near-death experiences, it's it has a very positive spin. And so could you talk a little bit about your experience with what you've learned with near-death experiences over the years? Hmm. Studying near-death, studying death experiences. So near-death experiences, it was a, it's a term that was coined by Raymond Moody. And uh, he's one of the early with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, um, who I, I feel like I need to, to, 
to do this for Elizabeth. <laughs> so everybody talks about the stages of grief, um, her five stages of grief, but they, the, they were actually the five, five stages of dying. So it's, 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 it's different. Um, and, and she's been critiqued for, for some of those stages, but it really is. It's, it's about an individual who has some sort of a terminal prognosis. And it's the, that's why bargaining is part of it. You know, you can't really bargain after someone's dead. You can't bargain with God. Can you please bring them back? That bargaining piece. It's, it's when you're dying, you, you have, and now I'm not going to remember them all. (laughs) Maybe you can help me, but um, there's, you know, there's denial. Mm -hmm. Um, Initially there's anger. Um, There's um, oh gosh, bargaining. I'm going to, I'm going to forget one of them. And there's the last one is acceptance, but yeah, I'm I'm forgetting one of them as well. Uh, now it's gonna It'll come to us. It'll come to us. Um, so, uh, but reading her and um, and then Raymond Moody and learning about near death experiences that there are, I just thought, oh, I'm gonna find a handful of these out there, and this was 35 years ago, and at that time there wasn't a lot written about it, but you could dig and you could find, I I found some fantastic books that had many people's experiences of having died, um, <clears throat> having had a spiritual experience on the other side, meeting Jesus, meeting God, seeing the white tunnel, the white, the light, you know, um, um, meeting uh, pre- d- loved ones who had previously passed, um, sometimes even seeing animals, dogs and cats. And I mean, really, uh, really cool things. That just, I don't know, that lit a fire in me and I couldn't stop. So it's been now 35 years of reading near-death experiences. Um, I watch YouTube videos. I am, I'm always, I'm constantly watching films on death and I don't, I don't know what happened to me, but I just got, in fact, when I finally got to my master's program, uh, finally, after many, many years of cooking, but I finally went back to school and got to my master's program when I met my mentor. (laughs) at the University of Utah, I found this man who was studying death and dying and who was teaching classes on it. And I went up to him and said, oh my gosh, I've got to take classes from you. I'm so excited to find someone that's, you know, and he just looked at me and he did this like, like his hands together, like, like little fingers going, oh, he goes, we love death and dying. (laughs) So it is, I don't know. It is funny how it, 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 I don't know. It becomes a passion. It is, it's a strange thing, but it has given me so much peace. I have no fear of death, not one ounce of fear of death. I don't want to die yet. I've still got a daughter who's 21 and one that's 23 and a wonderful husband and lots of friends and family. I don't want to die, but if I did any second, I would be fine (laughs) because it's so much better over there than here. So I just have, it's not even like a hope anymore or a a desire to know or a, a dream or a wish. I feel like it's an absolute knowledge that I have that the life after this one is, it's just going to be pretty dang awesome. So no fear here. Well, and I think that that's one of the benefits of looking at death and dying and doing exactly what you did, you know, rather than running from it or turning away from it because your experiences as a teenager were really formative. I lost a dear friend when I was in high school Um, and you feel so much as a teenager, you know? And so, um, and yet by looking and exploring these experiences and by not turning away, there is that peace. Cause I think a lot of people listening, um, 
there's a, I mean, fear of death is an existential fear that is kind of cooked into being human, you know? Um, and so, so what, it's an interesting question. Like how do we live more fully by, um, by not being afraid of dying? Hmm. I saw that a lot when I was in hospice care. There is truly an uh, an avoidance of death. We are so afraid of it. And I, I'm not afraid of death itself. I, I am a little afraid of suffering. I will say that. I don't, the, the suffering part, but even that, which is interesting, the more that we, that we look at um, our spiritual journey here on life, in life, on this earth, I think the more that we, we can realize that even suffering can be um, gosh, dare I say it? Cause it, you know, it's like, I know that I know <laughs> I'm probably going to now get some experience in my life that pushes me even further, you know? Um, but it's, it can be beautiful. It can be, it's so growth promoting. Um, when I was working in hospice, I would see folks, I still have vivid memories of certain clients, uh, certain patients who, um, were so afraid of death. They were holding on to life with everything within them. This is maybe the cancer patient who continues to try, um, you know, study after study, um, drug after drug, you know, just to try to continue living, even though their body is wasted and, you know, bloated and distorted and, um, family members also begging them. I did see often that often someone who was more often than not someone who was dying was more ready to go than maybe their family members were. And so then the family members were the ones that were kind of pushing them, maybe not even saying it implicitly or explicitly, but the message was very clear. And so the dying individual feels like they need to continue to fight for mom or for their spouse or for their child or for the whomever. Um, yeah. I recently had Steven Jenkinson on as a guest. He wrote um, a really powerful book called die wise. And oh. he talks about um, this mantra that we have. Um, if you can, you should mm. like in our healthcare, in, in the process of, terminal illness and chronic illness, that there's this overwhelming push, um, by, you know, that, that we're all complicit in, you know, and I'm, I'm within healthcare that, um, if you can, you should, meaning if there's an option to continue with treatment, it's very countercultural to say, I'm ready to stop. You know, that takes, it's almost like turning around a cruise ship or something, you know, to really change the momentum of how things are going. Well, it is, is interesting. I did an internship for about eight months in a bone marrow transplant unit. And um, most of the folks, doctors and nurses included that worked there, if when I had a chance to talk to them, you know, personally on the side would say, oh yeah, we're push, we push and we push for everything that we can do for our, our patients. But what would we do individually if we were the ones it's different. Right. And so, yeah, there's a, it's uh, that personal versus sort of personal decisions versus what's, what's out there to be done. And this idea that we somehow need to exhaust every last morsel of, you know, of availability. But I, there was a woman who was, um, 
she had been told by the hospice nurse that, and this was months before she was near passing, but she'd said, well, as long as you're eating, you know, cause she was so afraid of death. As long as you're eating, you'll be fine. You know, just keep, you know, and as it approached and, and it was clear to everyone that, that her body was literally dying and withering away. And she wasn't going, she would say she, I remember her holding onto the little covers and she had her hands up over the top of the covers near her neck. And she was saying, just give me some food, just give me some food so I can, so I can live longer. And her little body was just weak and tiny and frail and couldn't even take a bite of yogurt. But so that was really sad to watch. And she just, um, she had had fears that, that began when she was a young child, when her mom died, she was only five and she watched her mom die in a bed next door. And uh, that was, you know, 80 years prior. And she still had this mortal fear of, of death. So sad to watch and there wasn't much I could do. Yeah. You know, you can try to, yeah, you can't, that's one thing I never do is, is push my beliefs on anyone else or, um, talk about it. If someone doesn't believe in it, you know, I, I, you can try to get at it by music. Sometimes I would sing music, try to have a peaceful, calming influence or, or something like that, but it's not like you can Well, and I think, you know, there's a time for us to do our work, meaning all of us. And I think that um, it seems to me that, that, you know, before that final time, I, I really think that it's useful to look at our ideas around death and dying to not to be morbid, right? I I actually think, you know, um, the Dalai Lama does a practice every day where he, you know, it's a spiritual practice in that tradition of of dying, of you know, of meditating and practicing, almost letting go in minor ways. And I think um, because I think it is hard when when we're struggling with physical pain or with all the emotions that rise within families too at, at the very end. So um, that's why I think it's interesting, you know, that you're that you've had such a an interest in this. And I also find it interesting now that you have kind of pivoted your work and you're working with um, in, in the world of addiction. Can you talk about how that happened and any similarities that you see in that work? Yeah. Um, great question. I, I was, I mean, I haven't even mentioned the death of my brother, which interestingly, and I haven't really put this into words very succinctly. So I hope I can, I can do so pretty clearly here, but I, I still getting my thoughts around it. My brother died at age 32 of alcoholism. And that was, um, that was 13 years ago. And when he died, uh, I had not yet gone back to school. And that really was the thing that lit the fire under me. Um, so you, you had right there, the convergence of issues of addiction, right. And, and death in there, in my, in my brother, um, went back to school, got my master's, began practicing social work in hospice care, uh, thought of my brother often daily. Um, and, and actually I will say I had some really powerful experiences with my brother after he passed. It's, um, very, very, very special experiences with him. Um, but I think, and and I always felt that the hospice was my, my calling. And I still, like I said, I still do incorporate 
spirituality uh, in every every day in what I do. Um, but I'm not necessarily talking about death, death and dying every day. Uh, uh, short story is that a shift, a shift, the shift happened when I quit my job in hospice to go to Greece. I took my daughter to Greece and we were there for almost two months on a humanitarian um, mission. We were helping Yazidi refugees, um, horrible, um, um, just massacre of those people by ISIS. And they had made their way, some some of them to Greece and other countries, but Greece was one country that had opened their arms to it, to having refugees come in. And so we went there to work with them and it was a really beautiful experience. But when I quit my job, they, they said they will hold it for me. They said, we'll hold your job for you for two months. And I don't know, there was just something in me that was saying, it's kind of time to move on to something different. I don't know what, but it's kind of time to move on. And um, so I did let them know I about halfway. And I said, you know, if you guys find somebody else at, that you love, you know, please feel free to hire them. I know two months is a long time. And so they began the process. And interest is interestingly, a week before I got back from Greece, they let me know that they'd found someone. And I thought, good, great. This is a nice place <laughs> I can go. And I don't know, there was just something calling me somewhere else. And so I, um, the job I have now, I work in a small clinic uh, with an amazing psychiatrist. I'll just, um, Dr. Susie Wyatt. She's fantastic. She started this clinic. Um, all of the practitioners there, her, the psychiatrist, we have an MD, we have uh, four therapists that work there. It's a very um, holistic uh it's called Sylvania. It's in downtown Salt Lake, but it's very holistic um, clinic where we do yoga and Tai Chi and art and, and music and nutrition and, you know, individual therapy and group therapy. And, um, and then this, you know, on, on the medicine side, they, you know, we have a doctor that's helping people with their, with addiction and trauma as well, mostly addiction issues. Um and I don't know, I just, I just moved in there and moved into that. And I love the work. Um, every single day I have the opportunity to, um, help people find purpose and meaning because all addiction is addiction and trauma are very closely linked. And to me, addiction is just, it's, it's just a hole inside of us. It's just an emptiness. It's a vacuity inside of us and we're filling it with something. And for some people it's drugs. And for some people it's alcohol. And for some people it's sex. And for some people it's shoe shopping. And for some people it's food. And we can go on and on with all the things, even exercise, even things that we think of as being good. Can we can them in overabundance in an unhealthy way? And so um, it's not that different actually from what I was doing before right? It's just the, it's the journey of life that we're all, we're all searching for purpose and meaning. And as Victor Frankl said, you know, if we can find, if we can find the, the purpose in our lives, then we can, we can get through anything at all. Um, so that's what I'm doing. And we, yeah, but anyone who's willing, uh, and I usually ask in my assessment initially, if they are religious or spiritual or what their beliefs are. And so I know right off the bat who I might be able to sort of speak with about these really special sacred issues. And for many of my clients, it's been absolutely transformative. And for me as well, for, to go on the journey with them. 
Really beautiful. Carrie, I, I, you know, I, I started this podcast because I'm really interested in people in the world right now who can um, be present to hard things. You know, when I look at wholeheartedness, it's this ability to, um, to not look away, right. To, to be present and compassionate. Um, and I think that, I think the world needs more people like that. You really seem to be one of those people. <laughs> um, Thank you. You someone too. who can just yes yeah, sit with the hard stuff, right? To not look away, and and it sounded like, you know, you did that for your high school boyfriend and his mother and all the people that you helped during your years um, at hospice, but also the people that you fed when you were, you know, a chef and catering. It's so funny that we can do this in so many different ways, and that. Um, that we have this ability to be with the hard stuff. And yet sometimes I think the more that we can be present to, you know, a really difficult refugee situation in Greece or at, at the bedside of someone dying, it's, it almost enhances or increases our capacity for joy mm. in the good times. What do you think about that? Great question. Yes. My, we, my um, husband and I have been through some really, really hard um, things together, mostly concerning our our children. And um, he said one day, "I, he's, I mean, we 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 both we would talk about the the pain that we were going through and how very difficult it was, um, but also the the joy." That would come from spiritual communion with God and with meditation and prayer and with, you know, scripture study and all of the study that he's a um, professor of literature uh, and, and, and is studying in his world. He's looking at kind of the overlay between literature and critical theory and spirituality right now. And so he's been doing that for probably a good 10 years. And so our paths have grown closer together, you know, as we've both been studying this, these issues and so he said, I, I, sometimes I don't know the difference between the deepest, darkest suffering and the most transcendent joy. <laughs> I said, I know, right. It just yeah. commingles. It's just, it, they sit side by side and I feel like one is not possible without the other. Um, yeah. I mean, light and shadow, sound and silence. Like you almost, we as humans need we need that gamut. We need that octave on the piano to understand. And to, um, I remember once I had a toothache and it was like the lack when the toothache went away, it was like, Oh my gosh, just not having a toothache. Um, I think I had read something that Thich Nhat Hanh had said about like, you know, when, when you're in pain, just the lack of pain, you don't even have to be in great joy, but it's just understanding that gamut of the human experience. Oh, I remember having the same experience when I had the flu one time and I was so sick for so long. It was, I mean, a week or something, five days or six, I don't know. And I, and I just remember feeling the first moment that I started feeling no nausea. I was like, oh, wow, this is so great. So yes, to appreciate things that we don't appreciate on a daily basis that we take for granted, right? And so I wonder, as we just begin to wrap up, do you have any insight or, you know, to someone listening who may uh, say these two are crazy. Like I'm <laughs> terrified of death. I don't even want to think about it until it's upon me. Um, 
any lessons that you've learned or any words of, um, you know, because you have such a sense of common peace around that. Um, just any advice or words of wisdom for people who may, um, may want that peace, mm. but may not know even how to begin to get there. Mm. Well, it, it sounds daunting to say, oh, I, you know, just study for 35 years and you'll, <laughs> I don't think that's necessary. Um, we have, there are so many um, resources out there today. I love sometimes just to go to bed at night, just to go to sleep and to relax. I will put my little headphones on and listen to a YouTube video um, on I mean, there's so many sites out there. If all you have to do is look, put in NDE or put in spiritually transformative experience or put in, you know, um, what are the other things? There's a great, uh, great Emmanuel Swedenborg. I don't know if you heard of him or if you read him. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's wonderful. And I think just reading, he was a um, 18th century scientist and um, theologian who probably would be more well-known now if he hadn't had these spiritual visitations, right? For how many, I don't remember how many years it was, decades that he said he was being transported back and forth from the spirit world into this world and having conversations with angels. And, um, but there's just so much amazing stuff out there. And I think I would just say, be curious and seek it out. There isn't a day that goes by that I'm I'm not filling my soul, even if it's 15 minutes, but most often it's at least an hour, but filling my soul, I'm making time somewhere in my day to fill my soul with something that feels larger than me, something transformative, something that causes me to want to be a better person, to know myself more, to understand my soul and spirit um, to a greater degree. And that is what's given me the peace. Uh, Near-death experiences are amazing because um, they always have love in them. Love. Love is the, it is the, I believe it's the power of the sun. I believe it's the power of everything in the universe. I think that everything is somehow powered by love. I don't think we end, we actually understand what love is. I think it's very scientific and I think it's very, you know, um, emotional. And I think it's very spiritual. And I think it's, I think it is encompasses everything. So um, yeah, that's just, it's been a journey of, of discovering love and there's nothing to fear in love, not nothing at all. Yeah, my um my Facebook hand like the little description under uh for about 15 years now for me has been love is why we're here. Like love is the fabric. It's in my spiritual experiences, it's just it's such an overwhelming energy that there's nothing else, right? That it brings everything into light. And um, and I think that's what's beautiful about near-death experiences is this um, it's almost hard to put into words the level of love that people commonly describe. I mean, that is like a common, (laughs) that's a universal that people seem to lead with. And so it's very comforting to read those experiences. I had um, Dr. Eben Alexander on this podcast last year, and he 
Um, he's very interesting because he's a neurosurgeon who had a near-death experience. And so he comes at it from both the scientific bent, but then, you know, science falls away and all he can talk about is love. <laughs> so it's really yes. fun. Yeah, he's, he's wonderful. I, I read his book a long time ago and I did listen to your the podcast. He's, he's fantastic. Um, and yeah, it seems like he spends a lot of his time looking at uh, consciousness and, and, but love is infused in all of that. Um, so yes, I think, uh, and, and that is really, that's what, that's the common thread, um, that connects us as human beings and, and connects anything that we might engage in here, whether it's being a doctor, whether it's being a therapist, no matter what you're doing in, in, in your world, if you are a, I just heard the garbage truck go by. If you're a garbage collector, if you are, you know, that, that love is the thing that connects us all. We, everything we do, we can do with love. Everything we do, we can, you know, um, have that care in it. And, um, anyway, I could go on about love. (laughs) Well, Carrie, I'm so grateful for your time today. I'm grateful for the work that you've done in the world and that you continue to do. I feel, um, it's really fun to see someone who is who listens to where they're called. And it sounds like you've been listening your whole life and you'll continue to listen. And so who knows where you'll be called in the future. But I think that um, that thread of caring for people and caring for the world is is very evident in your in your life's work. So thank you for sharing your wisdom with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful.